Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. The first reading, as Louise just mentioned, is from the book of Daniel. If you have a Red Pew Bible anywhere around you and like to do things on with, with paper Bibles, um, it is on page 725 of the Red Pew Bibles, Daniel chapter 8. Um, otherwise, it's on the screen or you could look it up on your phone. All those options. But ja- Daniel chapter 8, the whole chapter. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me at first. In the vision, I was looking and saw myself in Susa, the capital, in the provinces of Alam, and I was by the river Ule. I looked up and saw a ram standing beside the river. It had two horns. Both horns were long, but one was longer than the other and the longer one came up second. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. All the beasts were powerless to withstand it, and no one could rescue rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became strong. As I was watching, a male goat appeared from the west, coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a horn between its eyes, it came towards the ram with, its two, with the two horns that I had seen standing beside the river, and it ran at it with savage force. I saw it approaching the ram. It was enraged against it and struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram did not have power to withstand it. It threw the ram down to the ground and trampled upon it, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. Then the male goat grew exceedingly great, but it's at the height, the height of its power, the great horn was broken, and in its place there came up four prominent horns towards the four winds of, the he- of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, a little one, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grew as high as the host of heaven, It threw down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars and trampled them. Even against the prince of the host, it acted arrogantly. It took the regular burnt offering away from him and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of wickedness, the host was given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. It cast truth to the ground and kept prospering in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, then transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled? And he answered him, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared standing before me, having the appearance of a man. And I heard a human voice by Yule saying, Gabriel, help this man understand the vision. 
So he came near to where, where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and fell prostrate. But he said to me, understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. As he was speaking to me, I fell into a trance. The face to, faced the ground, then he touched me and set me to, on my feet. He said, listen, and I will tell you what will take place later in the period of wrath. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea, Media and Persia. The male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At the end of their rule, when the transgressions have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance shall arise, skilled in intrigue. He shall grow in power, shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does. He shall destroy the powerful and the people of the holy ones. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his mind he shall be great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and, even, and shall even rise up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken, and not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that, you ha that has been told is true. As for you, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was, so dis I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. Uh, the second reading from the New Testament is from John chapter 16, which if you are um, reading along in the Pew Bibles is on page 878, and it's John chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will keep you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who will kill you will think that, that by doing so they are offering worship to God. They, uh, uh, and they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But... I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you will remember that I, have to that I told you about them. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was, I am, I was with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Richard's my name. I'm the site pastor here at St. John's in Ashfield, uh, one of those three sites, as Louisa mentioned, that makes up uh, Christchurch Inner West. Uh, my job's to look after what happens here at the 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. congregations. Uh, great to have you with us this evening, and especially great uh, to be beginning what is um, a really, really wacky, uh, but also quite wonderful section of the scriptures in this second half of uh, Daniel. Uh, we'll come to um, particularly what we're going to uh, get into in chapter 8 in just a little while. Uh, I want to begin by uh, giving you a bit of a history lesson, though, actually. Uh, for many years, uh, Northern Ireland was uh, rocked by violence that came to be known as the Troubles. Uh, Unionists and Loyalists wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom, uh, while Irish Nationalists and Republicans wanted to leave the UK uh, and form a unified Ireland with the Republic of Ireland in the south uh, and Northern Ireland in the north. Uh, in fighting between these two groups uh, and between the British forces between the late 60s and the late 90s, uh, 3,500 were killed. 
uh, including about 2,000 civilians. Uh, in January 1972, one of the worst instances of civilian deaths occurred, an incident that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. Uh, 13 unarmed men were shot dead by the British Army at a protest rally, uh, prompting reprisals by Irish nationalists over the rest of that year that killed about 100 members of the security forces. Uh, it became one of the defining moments of the Troubles. Uh, now, in the early 1980s, reflection on that particular day and the horrors of it and the seemingly endless violence in the north of the island uh, prompted an up-and-coming rock band from the north side of Dublin uh, to write one of their most famous songs named Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, reflecting particularly on that event from which the song takes its name. Uh, now, a bit of musical education for you here as well as the history, right? <clears throat> Uh, this is the all-time greatest rock band in the world, and this is one of the all-time greatest songs in all of rock music history. And in part, what's, what makes it not just a great rock song, but actually a great protest song, uh, is, uh, and especially uh, powerful as a live performance, is that actually it's kind of animated by this sheer kind of rage, actually, righteous anger, indignation against the violence that continued to sweep the nation of Ireland, where uh, you two and the band members are from. Uh, I could quote the lyrics for you, uh, I could even uh, try to sing it for you, but it's even better just to hear a little bit of yourself. Um, so I'm going to actually let you watch a little bit of the band performing this song together. If you're on the live stream, I can't show you the video on the live stream because copyright is a thing. And so uh, Stephanie, who's on the live stream desk tonight, is going to post a link for you in the chat so you can have a bit of a watch of it. I'm just going to play you a couple of minutes of this. Here they go, performing the song together. It'll be real fun just to watch the whole thing. I won't, I won't you know, you can go and look it up later on. Um, it's this tremendously powerful song, and as I say, kind of driven by this sense of rage and indignation against the violence that was sweeping uh, Ireland throughout uh, much of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, I've only given you a snippet of the song, but um, already you can hear uh, what I think is one of the most brilliant things about it, the repeated refrain that comes again and again through the song, how long, how long must we sing this song? Uh, it's a refrain, actually, that's borrowed from the Psalms, uh, where God's people, both in response to their own individual troubles and the troubles that come upon Israel as a whole, cry out, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long must I bear pain in my soul? How long will our enemies be exalted over us? Uh, now, Northern Ireland, of course, isn't the only place that has experienced troubles of various kinds, and we find ourselves actually in many ways in troubling times in the world today. Uh, we've called this uh, series in this second half of Daniel, picking up where we left off uh, last year, uh, Faithfulness in Troubling Times. And we think actually it has a real word to speak to us right here in this particular historical moment in which we find ourselves. Uh, in the world around us today, we see uh, Russia continuing its uh, gruelling bloodshed in Ukraine. We see uh, China flexing its muscle in our own uh, geopolitical backyard. We see Christian believers continue to be slaughtered in places like Afghanistan. We see nations like America continue to sacrifice their own children on the idolatrous altar of gun ownership. And we might want to cry out, how long? How long will this go on? It's a standard biblical response to these kinds of troubling times. How long? In other words, when will this end? We can't take much more of it. How long, God, how long will you let this keep going on? And that cry, how long, is taken up in our chapter from Daniel today in response to a specific prophecy about the persecution of God's people in a specific time and place. It's there in verse 13. Let me read it for you. For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled? In other words, how long will this persecution last? But there's something quite unusual about this question here in Daniel. And what's unusual about it is that in God's kindness, in this vision that he gives to Daniel and indeed to us as God's people, he actually gives an answer to that question. It's in the very next verse. How long? 
for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. What exactly does that mean? We'll come to that later on in the sermon. But the, the point is, you know, how long? This long. God has promised that an end is in sight. This is when it will end. But not before, he says, more trouble has come. Uh, one commentator on Daniel calls the book a realistic survival manual for the saints. Uh, it's a book that doesn't sugarcoat the fact that life on this side of new creation will be full of trouble. Instead, what it does is to prepare us to live faithfully through that trouble. Uh, so far in this book, in the first half that we worked through last year, uh, Daniel and his friends have shown us what it looks like to be faithful to God in a hostile culture. As Jews who've been sent off in exile into Babylon, they learn uh, how to remain distinctively God's people while also serving the common good of a people that doesn't know God at all. In these visions that complete the book in uh, chapters 8 to 12, that same theme, faithfulness in troubling times, is explored with reference not to Daniel's present, actually, but to Daniel's future, to what God tells him is to come in the years, the centuries, in the, the history of the world ahead. And it's designed to prepare God's people ahead of time for the trouble that's to come. So we're picking it up in the second of the visions that Daniel receives. There's a vision that kind of finishes the first section in chapter 7 and kind of forms a bit of a hinge, and we pick it up with the second vision here in chapter 8. And it reveals uh, two things that we need in order to be prepared. We need to know the pattern of history and the promise of God. And so those are going to be our headings today, pattern, promise, and finally the preparation uh, that it enables for us. Firstly, the pattern. Uh, Daniel has a really a very strange uh, vision indeed. Uh, various animals rampaging around who grow multiple horns and the horns themselves grow horns and then divide and then rise up to fight against the stars. All normal dream stuff for most of you, I'm sure. It's quite a trip, really. Uh, thankfully, this is actually, I, I kid you not, this is the easiest part of all of Daniel's visions, right? And it's because it's one of those beautiful parts in the Bible where we're given the key, right? The angel Gabriel turns up and gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream in verses 20 to 25. So, let me retell uh, the vision that Daniel has uh, with that knowledge that we learn from Gabriel later in the chapter. The vision begins in Daniel's own day when the Babylonians are in control of the Middle East, but it moves on quite quickly to the time of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, under King Cyrus, Persia had gained the upper hand over the former Median Empire and absorbed it into the one kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the vision portrays that empire as resembling a ram with two horns. The first, the king of the Medes, and the second, the king of Persia, which, which grew up bigger and overwhelmed the first one. Uh, the goat that comes along next is the Greek Empire, uh, and uh, Alexander the Great is the especially great horn there. Uh, between 333 and 323 BCE, Alexander swept across the Middle East and carved through the Persian Empire, extending Greece's territory all the way to the borders of India. Uh, in the vision, the, the goat is depicted as coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. It's an image of just how rapid the advance was. And that must have, been, must have been how it felt to those, actually, who saw it happen. This has just happened overnight. Crazy. But in the vision, the great horn breaks, and four other horns grow up in its place. From our vantage point here on, on this side of the vision in, in history, we can look back, actually. We know that Alexander died somewhat suddenly in 323 BCE, and before he died, he divided up his empire between four of his generals, Cassander over Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus over Thrace and Asia Minor, Ptolemy over Egypt and Palestine, Seleucus over Syria and Mesopotamia. Those last two, the territories in Egypt and the territories in Syria, are kind of to the south and to the north of Israel. Israel, all the way through the scriptures, 
Poor little old Israel just gets stuck in the middle of these great imperial powers all the time. Almost all the bad stuff that happens to Israel is because they get run over by people who don't really care about them and just trying to get onto whatever else they're doing. And that's what happens here. They're stuck right in between uh, the Ptolemies in Egypt in the south and the Seleucids in Syria in the north. Now, the small horn then that grows up is one of those Seleucid rulers, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. More about him in just a little while. So there you go. That's what's going on in this vision. That's what it looks forward to from Daniel's vantage point, and that's what we see it, uh, how we see it fulfilled uh, from our perspective uh, on this side. Uh, the question is, why give Daniel this overview of ancient Middle Eastern politics? Uh, it is very much an overview. There's like 300 years of history that passes here in not very many verses. And that's actually part of the point. From God's perspective, none of these great empires amounts to very much at all. They can be talked about, you know, here they are, and then they disappear again. It just takes eight verses or whatever. That's all they are. The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, they all came and went. Each of them seemed indestructible in their own day. Each of them seemed all-powerful. Every one of them is gone. What we have here, you see, is a map of history, and it reveals to us the, the pattern of history. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. They throw their weight around in grand conquests, trampling plenty of ordinary people along the way, and then they come to ruin. That's just what happens. That's how it goes. Alexander the Great, where's he now? Worm food. What became of his empire? Dust. Fun things that you dig up and look at in museums. That's what's left. And the same goes for all those empires that have come and gone ever since, for the Romans, for the Byzantines, for the Austro-Hungarians and the Soviets, even for the French and the British. And the same will one day happen to the resurgent Russia and to China and to the American empire such as it is and to whoever else happens to come in the future after them. When viewed from God's perspective, there's a pattern to history. Empires rise, empires fall. None of them last forever. Grand geopolitical victories fade into insignificance. Uh, but as they say, uh, the personal is political. Uh, or to flip it the other way, the political is personal. And from the perspective of little old you and me down here on the ground, right, or for little people like us who've lived throughout these empires, a great deal of damage can be done by those empires in their day, can't they? And so Daniel's vision zooms in on one particular suffering of God's people under the reign of the little horn, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, he's one of those Seleucid kings in kind of Syria and to the north and east of Israel uh, who uh, ruled after the breakup of the Greek Empire. He's a little horn, right? He's smaller by comparison to the other kings who are described here. He, he's, he's nothing like Alexander the Great. And yet the, the scriptures here tell us that he grew as high as the host of heaven and threw down to the earth some of the hosts and some of the stars. Uh, in historical terms, uh, what Antiochus IV Epiphanes did was to try and take on the Ptolemies in Egypt to the south and made a mess of it, basically, failed. Uh, but seemingly, he took out his rage at being unable to uh, complete that conquest on little old Israel caught in the middle between these two empires, as they so often were. It wasn't a massive advance like Alexander the Great's, and yet for the people of God, it was a total disaster. Uh, this king even, uh, the scriptures tell us, acted arrogantly against the prince of the host, that is, against God himself. And the particular way that he did that, that the vision's interested in here, is that he's taken the regular burnt offering away from God and overthrown the place of his sanctuary. We know from history that Antiochus IV Epiphanes banned the Jews from making their regular temple sacrifices and instead took his own sacrifices to the pagan gods of Greece and Rome and made them in, in the temple in place of uh, of uh, worship, uh, the worship of Yahweh. 
Even more than that, he gave himself that name, you've heard me say already, Epiphanes, meaning revelation. He even wrote on the coins that were distributed in his kingdom, Epiphanes, Zeus, I am Zeus incarnate. I'm the manifestation of the great God. In verses 23 to 25, he's described as bold, as skilled in intrigue, as cunning, that under his rule there will be fearful destruction and deceit will prosper, and that indeed turned out to be true. He slaughtered entire families of Jews if even one of them continued to make their daily sacrifices. He blackmailed and bribed their priests and got them all on his side against the people. He destroyed their holy places and their scrolls. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was an incredibly nasty piece of work. It was one of the most extreme and intense experiences of persecution that God's people had ever felt to that point. But of course, what we know from the first part of this vision already is that what we're seeing here is the pattern of history, aren't we? Yes, they have a particular manifestations in the particular historical events that they foreshadowed, and yet it's all part of a pattern. It isn't the only time, you see, that evil such as this has occurred against the people of God. Uh, rightly, in my view, uh, Jews have often seen in Daniel 8 and in Antiochus IV Epiphany's reign of terror a foreshadowing of the Holocaust that would come in the Second World War. And Christians, too, have suffered through reigns of terror throughout history, from Roman emperors to atheistic communist states in Eastern Europe and in China to Islamic states in the Middle East to roving warlords in Africa. What happened under Antiochus in the second century is still happening every day to Christian believers in our world. It happened just last week, actually, just last Sunday, when Islamic militants burst into a church service in Nigeria, in the middle of them praying the Lord's Prayer together, as we will tonight. And with guns and dynamite, they murdered 50 men, women and children, sisters and brothers of ours. Uh, such horrors uh, really actually are an epiphany of sorts. They reveal what's really going on when people rise up in violence, not only against God's people, but against the rest of the world as well. Any violence is an affront to the one true and living God. And yet the evil and idolatrous excesses of any uh, empire, or a gang of thugs for that matter, is most clearly an affront to God when that violence is directed specifically against his own people. Instances like that expose the true nature of any human power that refuses to submit itself to the prince of princes. And what do we do when we see it? We cry out with the psalmist, don't we? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this? How long will this go on? How long until you make it stop? Do something about it. Uh, here in Daniel 8, as we mentioned before, there's an actual answer to that question. There's an answer to the how long question. Uh, it comes in the form of a promise. That brings us to point two. Uh, let me read for you again uh, from verse 13, uh, where that how long question is raised. For how long is this vision of con uh, concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled? For how long is this vision? Uh, we notice before that uh, how long question is uh, kind of a defining question of the Psalms in some ways, and also of many of the Old Testament prophets. It's, it's asked nearly 50 times in the Old Testament. But there's something unusual about the question here in Daniel, and it's actually not just that it receives an answer. Even before that is the fact that it isn't Daniel who asks this question, right? It's not Daniel who sees this vision and says to the Lord, how long is this going to last? No, actually, it's a conversation between two what's described as holy ones, two of the angelic beings who serve the Lord in heaven. Uh, what this is showing us already here in Daniel's vision, you see, is that the question that we cry out with in the face of injustice is heaven's question too. Heaven is on our side in this, you see. 
Heaven grieves with us and cries out with us and the heavenly beings themselves long for God to bring it to an end, just as we do. And Daniel's told that God will bring it to an end. Not just that he will, but when he will. So one of the holy ones asks how long and the other answers, verse 14. For 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Uh, it's not entirely clear actually how long that is. There's a couple of options in case you're interested. Uh, is it 2,300 evening morning periods, right? What happens between the evening and the morning or the morning and the evening? A day, right? Is it, does it mean 2,300 days? Or does it mean 2,300 of the sacrifices that happened at the, the morning and the evening each day? So 1,150 days. In other words, will Antiochus uh, IV Epiphany's evil persecution of God's people last for roughly three years and two months, or will it last for six years and four months? Uh, now, again, looking back from our vantage point uh, in history, uh, there's historical milestones in his reign that would make sense of either of those figures, actually. But in the end, of course, that isn't actually the point. The point is this. The point is that there is a fixed period. God has set a day when he will set this matter right. Now, it's a substantial period, right? Who wants to live through any form of persecution for six years or for three years? Even for three years, it's a long time. And yet, the Holy Ones can write down the number of days that it's going to last for. It can be calculated in days. It's, easy, it's, you know, it's conceivable to see the end of six years from now. When the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel in his vision, at the first appearance of Gabriel in the Bible, in case you're wondering, uh, when uh, Gabriel appears to Daniel in his vision, he reiterates this point, verse 19. He says, listen, and I will tell you what will take place later in the period of wrath, for the vision refers to the appointed time of the end. Uh, now, the, the wrath that he's talking about here is the wrath of the little horn. Often when we hear wrath in the scriptures, we assume it means the, the wrath of God against sin and evil, and, and often it does. Uh, here it's talking about the wrath of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the destruction and the degradation that he inflicts on God's people. And that wrath, God says, has an appointed end. God has marked the date in his calendar. That's when this is going to come to a stop. But notice also something different about the end prophesied here and the ends of the empires early in the vision. Uh, there's a ram, the goat comes along and breaks the ram, one empire overthrows another, the cycle starts again. The ram's horn breaks, death intervenes, and the empire breaks into four parts. Empires rise and fall and the pattern goes on. Uh, but notice how it is that the little horn's reign comes to an end, verse 25. Without warning, he shall destroy many and even rise up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken and not by human hands. Uh, this tyrant too, you see, will fall, but not simply through the old regular pattern, not by human hands, not by the regular rise and fall of history. No, the promise being held, held out here it's not simply that one empire will be replaced by another, but that God himself will get involved, that he will break into history and bring this evil empire down. God will hear the cries of his people, the cries echoed in heaven itself, and will come himself in his own wrath against the one who oppresses them. The promise isn't simply that in the big scheme of things, this moment will pass. Ah, oh, you know, well, don't worry, things will be better for a while under the new empire. The new management will help, I'm sure. No, it's more than that. It's that God will intervene decisively to do something about the suffering of his people. Now, this is a vision given to Daniel about some specific events in history, but it's also a vision given to us, right? This is why it's in our scriptures. And that's, I think, why there's a degree of vagueness in all of this. 
Uh, we're told who it refers to, uh, but actually this whole pattern we see played out in history in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of historical circumstances. We see empires and tyrants and troubled times all through history, not just in these years described here. And that vagueness, you see, applies to the appointed end as well. We ourselves live in troubled times, and we talked about some of it already. The rise of authoritarianism around the world has been well documented. China doing its thing, a war in Ukraine that six months ago was unthinkable. And uh, at the same time, uh, that war more and more affects daily life and all kinds of cost of living pressures and that kind of thing here on the other side of the world, somehow horrifyingly synchronised with the economic consequences of a, of a two-year pandemic. Bad. Troubling times. Big picture geopolitics affects us just as much as it did Daniel. And his vision is a vision for us too, you see, as we face our own troubled times here. The trouble that we see is part of the established pattern of life in this world, in this age, and the same promise applies. God will bring an end to the destruction and degradation of his people and in due course to the destruction and degradation of the whole earth. That's the message of Daniel 8 for God's people in every time and every place. God has appointed a day when he will break every tyrant's rule and will usher in his own everlasting kingdom. That's the headline, if you like, of this whole passage. Evil has an end date. Suffering has an end date. We've seen so far that there's an overarching pattern to history. Every empire, however great, will fall. And there's a promise that evil that empires inflict as the pattern plays out have an end date when God himself will intervene. What does that mean for you and me in our own troubled times, our own troubling times? That's what we're going to consider briefly as we come to our final point. How does this help us in our preparation for living faithfully through times like this? I want to, uh, to unpack that a little bit by looking right at the very last verse of the passage where Daniel gives his own response to this vision. And there's something kind of um, lovely and disarmingly real about Daniel's response here. Have a look at the final verse, verse 27. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. A few observations about this. First, notice where Daniel finishes. He didn't understand the vision. And you kind of hear him say that and you go, didn't you just have like an angel come and tell you what was going on in the vision and still you didn't understand it? Uh, well, of course he didn't, actually. The events that were described still hadn't happened. Yes, Gabriel had given his interpretation. But even Gabriel himself in verse 26, he says, it's about many days from now. Daniel gets the big picture, but he doesn't understand all the details. That tells us something significant about the purpose of this vision right there, right? The purpose is given to help us to prepare for troubling times. The right response to all this isn't to try to map specific historical phenomena onto the visionary scheme that we've been given. It's not as though God is telling us here in 2022 that one day the great horn of Putin will break and Russia will be broken up into four, into four different empires. That's not what's going on, right? We're not supposed to use this passage like that. It's not the detail that matters, it's the pattern on both the big picture geopolitical level and on the everyday level of our own and others' experiences of suffering. The purpose of this vision is to help you and me to live through troubled times without being thrown off course. Because, of course, these kinds of things are the things that happen. God's told us that this is what's going to happen until the Lord returns. And so it's right for us to be angry about war in Ukraine. It's right for us to be outraged about a church being blown up in Nigeria. It's right for us to be deeply grieved by kids being gunned down in Texas. And you know what? God's angry about it too. Heaven shares in that cry of how long? But even though we should be angry about it, we shouldn't for a moment be surprised. You see, this shouldn't surprise us at all. 
This is what God has said this world will be like until the Lord returns. Uh, You see, what happens if you are surprised when this inevitable pattern of rise and fall, suffering and persecution comes? Well, what happens if you are surprised is that it will force you to to, to question all kinds of things that you held to be true. Unexpected twists and turns in our lives, whether global or personal, cause us to question what we thought we knew. Where was God when this happened? When did this, why did this happen to me? I thought I knew what my life was going to look like and now it's all fallen apart. I thought God loved me. Troubled times can knock you over. But God says troubled times will come. They will come. Don't be surprised by it. Trouble is the pattern of this age. And this vision is given to us to prepare us for such times so that when they come, instead of being knocked over, we can stand, knowing that God's own sovereign rule over history has not been knocked off course. He knew this was going to happen. And that he set a day when this trouble and every trouble will be brought to an end. God hasn't kind of just left the scene of the accident. He hasn't ceased being good. He prepares us in hope to endure the troubles that will absolutely come our way. Now, what's actually going to happen to you instead of just falling apart when trouble comes your way? What's going to happen to you if you actually allow this vision to prepare you for troubling times? Uh, I think one way to describe it, we see it from Daniel here uh, in this final verse of the chapter, is that we'll be able to face those kinds of times with a, a sort of confident humility. Uh, Notice again how Daniel responds to the vision. Uh, At first, what he does actually is chuck a sickie. I was overcome and lay sick for some days. Can't go to work. Too sick, had a bad dream. Got to stay in bed. Fair enough. It's a pretty intense dream. I don't think I've had a dream that intense before. But notice what he did next. Then I arose and went about the king's business. Daniel gets up and he goes to work. And you've got to remember what Daniel's job is at this point, right? He works for the king of Babylon, whose kingdom God has just shown him in a vision will not last, whose power and glory will in the end amount to nothing, and who will doubtlessly crush a bunch of ordinary people along the way, even if he's not that bad as a ruler of an empire. That's, who, that's Daniel's job. He works for this guy. But he gets up and he gets on with the king's business. He continues to serve that king, even actually to let that king set the agenda for him. In other words, the pattern and the promise revealed in the vision enabled Daniel to get on with contributing to the world, even to the pagan world in which he finds himself, even to the world that is hostile in so many ways to his faithfulness to the God of Israel. Uh, On the one hand, uh, the pattern revealed in this vision has shown Daniel that the fates of empires and kingdoms and nations, you see, just well above his pay grade. You've got to have some humility. It's just you can't fix empires. You can't. Stop thinking you can. You can't do it can't fix empires. On the other hand, the promise revealed in this vision has shown Daniel that whatever evil is inflicted by empires and kingdoms and nations along the way won't have the last word. And therefore, you see, he can confidently get about doing what good he is able to do in his God-given time and place, leaving the ultimate results, even of his own work, in God's hands. He's free to get about the king's business with humble confidence that the business of the king of kings will ultimately prevail. Daniel's taking to heart the promise of the vision that God's justice will break every evil and oppression, but not by human hands. It's a message that we need to take to heart as well. And if we do, we're going to be able to keep pursuing the good that God sets before us, even when the world around us seems to be coming apart at the seams. And we'll be able to do it without trying to shoulder too much of the burden, more than God has given you to do. But to do what God has given you to do to the best of your ability 
in order to actually love and serve the world of which God has made you a part. We'll be able to put our hands to whatever projects we're given, whether they're of international importance or whether or not they're relatively invisible, whether they affect whole cities or single families or even just one other person. We'll be able to put our hands to work in whatever projects God gives us, confident that God's the one who will take our work up into his own hands and make something of it in the end. Because troubled times might derail our projects, but they can't derail God's. He knew this was coming. The pattern, the promise, the preparation. As we draw to a close, I just want to make the observation that uh, Daniel's second vision here actually sets a challenge before us. Uh, Will we be prepared for troubled times? Will we see the pattern of history and the promise of God and so live through troubling times with confident humility? Is that what we'll do? Or will they throw us off course? When the pattern of this world causes us to cry out, how long will we trust God's promise that he has set a day when he will wipe every tear from every eye and death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more? And will we keep trusting that promise when we have to cry out how long again and again and again? That's the challenge set before us. And we, of course, have the Lord Jesus walking with us through this, the Lord Jesus himself also preparing us for this same challenge. Uh, We read uh, before from John 16, uh, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night before he died. Let me read it for you again. Jesus says, I've said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I've said these things to you so that, when, uh, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. You hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus' words, like Daniel's vision, prepare us for what's coming. So that when troubling times come, we go, no, Jesus told me this would happen. It's okay. I can survive through this with him. I can work through this with him. I can be faithful to him through this. He told me it would happen. Jesus wants to prepare us. And, of course, Jesus himself is the one who enables us to trust God's promise in those moments because he's the one who has broken the power of every earthly empire precisely by doing what merely human hands could not do. He brings in the kingdom of God. This is his message all the way throughout his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand, a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, but a kingdom, of course, that's very, very different to the kingdoms of the world. Uh, In the vision from Daniel, we've got these, these images of kingdom, right? A ram charging about. A goat with savage force that throws down and tramples underfoot. But as a symbol of the kingdom of God, we have the lamb that was slain. The prince of princes himself, the true epiphany, God in human flesh. He was broken by human hands. A sacrifice made to appease just one more human empire, and yet in his body bearing the full weight of the reign of sin and evil and death in our world. So the wrath of empire on one hand meets the appointed end of the wrath of God himself in the body of the Lord Jesus. And having so broken death, he lives forever and reigns over everything at his Father's right hand, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The decisive victory has been won. And our God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice and his kingdom will have no end. And so even as we cry out how long with sorrow in our hearts, we lift our hearts to our Lord, rejoicing in his promise. He says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need this word from Daniel in the kind of world in which we live. 
We need this beautiful vision that you've given to us, promising to us that, yes, these things will happen, yes, troubles will come our way, and yet that you promise that you will bring them to an end. Father, drive that promise deep into our hearts. Help us to see in the Lord Jesus, the true and living, uh, risen and reigning king of the universe, the one who has actually brought in a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom of love and peace and joy. And so, Father, fit us for your service in this world so that through our troubles we may faithfully follow the Lord Jesus in all things with confident humility doing the work that you set before us, getting about your business as our God and King. Father, we pray that you would do this work in us so that we might shine as a light to your glory in the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.